Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hi. So this week, we watched Eternal Beauty, a British indie film starring Sally Hawkins as a woman with schizophrenia. Written and directed by the young actor and filmmaker Craig Roberts, it's a stylized comedy drama co-starring David Thewlis and Billy Piper, along with several other familiar faces from British cinema. So this is a Patreon request, and we are very grateful as always. I had not heard about this movie. I think it probably had a slightly higher profile release in the UK, but it was a pretty small film there too, I think. And I must confess that I did not like it very much at all. You know, you win some, you lose some. I think you liked it a bit more than I. Yeah, I mean, I had kind of mixed feelings on it, which we're going to discuss. There were definitely some elements I liked. It's not really the type of film which I seek out. I was actually at the London Film Festival the year this premiered, and I kind of looked at it and was like, love the cast, but lower budget British dramas about people struggling with issues is one of my least desirable genres because I like to see things where, you know, people are experiencing history or laser beams in some capacity because I'm very frivolous. <laughs> this is a comedy drama, but like it is very much of a kind of recognizable type. You know, it's about people in an unspecified British slash English location having difficult lives. Um, it is not like a full-on sort of kitchen sink drama because it is very stylized. There's a lot of kind of obvious visual influences which we're going to talk about with Craig Roberts. And it stars precisely the sort of actors who love to be in this sort of thing. I actually, in the same year, saw Billy Piper's directorial debut, which also was along these lines, like a stylized British drama about people struggling with problems and co-starred David Thewlis as Billy Piper's father. So they were filming these more, on top of, more or less on top of each other. <laughs> yes. I think I probably have a slightly higher tolerance for this sort of thing than you do. I just didn't think this movie was done very well. There were certainly some interesting things about it, and I think that Craig Roberts has some talent as a director, which we will talk about. But as the movie wore on, I grew sort of increasingly frustrated with the script. And then by the end, I was really aggravated. I think the last five minutes of this movie, which we'll talk about at the end, not that this is like a massive spoiler film, but... The end really, really bothered me. And then that kind of soured me on the rest of the film retrospectively. But um, I mean, where should we begin? Do we want to give a little bit of background on Craig Roberts before we dive into the movie as a movie, perhaps? Yeah, I think so. I looked him up halfway through watching and I was like, oh, this explains so much to me about this movie. Because as I said in the intro, he's an actor. And um, I would imagine that British people who watch television will be more familiar with him than Americans because he's been in quite a lot of stuff, but not a lot of it has come over here. But the thing that he is most known for is starring in Richard Ayoade's film Submarine, which came out 10 years ago, and which is very much of its time high sort of quirk, twee, you know, indie cinema of circa 2010. And... Um, I really did not like that movie when it came out, although I do like Richard Ayoade a lot. But um, I remember being just incredibly aggravated by that film. And I think that you can see the visual impact of that movie in this film, which does have a quite heightened style, some of which is pretty interesting I and some of which really felt too much yeah. to me. It's very, it's very kind of quirky and also it's a film 
about mental illness, which is very quirky, which is, I think, kind of one of the key problems that you had with the film. And also I had in some ways, I really enjoyed the cinematography in a lot of ways. And I was kind of interested to read an interview with him where he kind of talks about how a lot of British indie dramas have extremely static cinematography. And he was influenced by kind of a lot of uh, American filmmakers who do basically, you know, who make this sort of film. He has like a wide variety of influences, but it was kind of interesting. And also to me, quite nice to like just do a quick google of Craig Roberts and learn more about his like background because in the vast majority of cases when you see a filmmaker in general but very specifically in Britain who's like made two movies by the age of 30 which Craig Roberts very impressively has it's always like a nepotism situation where like they're the son of like a dynasty of famous actors and went to Eton. Craig Roberts had like a very normal upbringing in Wales which also is like immediately relatively unusual because Welsh people are quite underrepresented in the British film industry. But um, he became like a child star because he like joined an inc- improv class and was then like cast in something off that and kind of accidentally became like a child actor. And um, there's this TV show in Britain called The Story of Tracy Baker, which is like based on this extremely popular series of children's books, which is still going like 20 years later. So he was in that. And then he was in like dozens of sort of TV shows and movies and stuff. And he is now still like he's still acting as well as directing so he's very prolific and he's also cracked America in America's ceaseless desire to cast uh, young British white men as American people he is now starring in an American sitcom as a Jewish American person in New Jersey and I was like well okay I guess they just simply ran out of Americans in America again hopefully his accent's good who knows he apparently is quite good in that show but yeah he made two films and I read an interview with him where he was kind of talking about like he didn't go to film school he didn't go to acting school he basically learned to act on the job and it seems like Richard Iwadi was like his kind of tipping point very very obviously because like he was suddenly exposed to like all of the influences of Richard Iwadi and it sounds a little bit like he was maybe a bit of a mentor to Craig Roberts or at the very least like gave him a lot of material to kind of work with it reminded me a little bit of when you hear about like Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson watching millions of indie movies together while making Twilight and then like going on to make the same type of indie movies as actors. But he was kind of saying, you know, you can learn about cinematography and sort of technical stuff from books, but you can't learn about working with actors from that. And it is something you hear a lot from actor turned directors that like they kind of understand more about how to work with actors. And sometimes that's a lot of hooey, but I think in this case, it's probably true because he is persuading these actors to work with him who are all like very respected actors. And also Sally Hawkins, who's now played his mother twice in British indie dramas, was like, yeah, of course I'll sign up to be in your low budget indie drama immediately after I was like at the Oscars. So like, you know, he must be a good person to work with. Well, she is, she's going to be in his next film as well. And I found an interview on the playlist with both of them um, about making this movie that is she is so gushing about him. It is really lovely. She talks about like wanting to be in the film and she says, I think it was because of Craig Roberts. He's a dear friend of mine and he happens to be a very brilliant actor, an amazing writer, and now a fantastic director, (laughs) which seems like a pretty natural transition for him actually. And then she just goes on and on about how wonderful he is. And it's just like really, really nice. She clearly genuinely just like loves him. She says, I mean, I'm just picking out random quotes from this very long answer about how much she thinks he's great. He's so special as a creator and he's so humble about it. What he's doing is extraordinary and he's still so young. I never thought as a child when we were all working together and he was playing my son, he would be 
a highly talented professional who at this point has probably been working for more of his life than I have. You know, he, she just goes on and on and clearly is really, really fond of him. So, you know, I think the main feeling I had about this film and we'll get into the details in a second, is like, I really didn't like it, as I keep saying, but it seems clear that it came from a place of like, good intentions. And he seems like a nice person. And clearly, she really enjoyed working with him. So it's not like it's malicious in any way. I just feel like it doesn't quite work. And I was wondering watching it, you know, why he had chosen to tackle this subject matter, you know, there aren't very many films about schizophrenia. And I thought he must have had some sort of personal connection or else it would be quite odd for him to have decided to write this film because he wrote it as well as directed it. And I was correct. He had a relative who had schizophrenia. And there was another interview where he explains his sort of approach yeah, there was this one interview I read where he basically said, like, I didn't really do any research. <laughs> he was like, oh, yeah, I based it on this person I know in real life, but I didn't really do any research. But because it's like a British funded indie drama, you do have like a consultant who is like brought in. And it, kind of, it wasn't like it said like basically the Wellcome Trust gave him a scientific consultant who made sure that the film wasn't offensive and like they had a person come in. <laughs> yes. Well, I think we may be talking about the same interview, but he what he says and I thought this really got to some of the problems with the film is I grew up around a family member of mine who in our reality was diagnosed with a mental illness, but to me, it was a superpower. I didn't realize much of it when I was a kid, but I suppose around about five or six years ago, I started to realize and heard more of the story. And I felt like I should share her superpowers with the world. She was an incredible person with what she was dealing with, always the funniest person in the room, completely wicked in her own way, and by far the most individualistic person I've ever met in my life. At every interview I read with him, he kept referring to this character as a superhero or having superpowers. And I completely understand that reaction as a child. Ha like an older person who seems like unbelievably charismatic or charming and or, like has some sort of extra quality that you're really drawn to at that age. And that quality is real. Like I'm not trying to be dismissive, but... I feel like that is an overly simplistic approach as the adult person telling this story. Yeah. I also, I found it very problematic that he kept referring to her as having superpowers, but it also like doesn't really reflect what the film's like. Because the film isn't, I mean, the film's pretty quirky stylistically, but it isn't doing one of these sort of approaches where it's like all these movies which kind of treat autism as like, here you have this like superhuman power but like aren't really engaged with like reality this was a movie where like yes you see her kind of like having auditory and visual hallucinations and she's like struggling with paranoia and like having issues telling difference between fantasy and reality and also she is like at times extremely charismatic which is like helped along by the fact that sally hawkins is very charismatic but it's not like this, like having schizophrenia is making her life easier or it like helps her in any way or any part of it is like portrayed as like, you've done this thing that's like really impressive and superpowered. It's more like her life is difficult and there is like a clash between her life being difficult when she's off her meds and when versus when she's on her meds and it's like dulling her personality. But I think, I mean, I agree basically with what you just said in the sense that she's not depicted as some kind of like, wildly heroic figure in the film in a sort of outsized way. 
But I think a lot of the problem with the movie is that it's just not specific enough about the actual lived experience of someone with this condition. And this is not something I am a like huge expert on at all, of course. But particularly the way the film handles medication felt very fuzzy to me. Like, she'll kind of take it, and then she's okay. Like, literally, like, take a pill, and then, like, now she's fine. And then she goes off of it, and then she's not okay anymore. And then, you know, when she's taking it, she's totally listless, and she doesn't like it. Which, that vague concept, obviously, I know that people experience that. But it all felt, again, like it had been filtered through someone who didn't quite get all the details about how this works. And, you know, other elements of the way that he was depicting schizophrenia, which I think comes through in the performance too. I liked Sally Hawkins much less than you in this movie. I think she's a great actor in general, but I felt like there were moments when she was really effective and then other moments where I felt like the direction had sort of pushed her too far in one direction or the other. Like when she's really in a state of extremis and is like having these paranoid hallucinations, I think she's bad in the movie because it's just too much. And I think it's a really difficult thing to dramatize in a way that doesn't feel hokey, right? Because that is a really over the top thing in reality. But Nevertheless, you're watching it and you're just like, oh, this doesn't feel right. And simultaneously, the moments where she's sort of the most low-key, having like dinner with her family, I also felt like it was kind of too... You're just having these awkward, awkward family dinners and I was just like, this is too awkward and like, ugh. It's kind of interesting to to hear you say that about the kind of lack of specificity because I feel like that sort of ties into kind of the whole stylized thing he's got going on where it's like there's some scenes which are very kind of heavily stylized in that they're like there's a lot of color coding happening there is a lot there's like scenes where there's a sort of Gondry-esque uh like camera work where they've got like parts of the set moving around like an eternal sunshine spotless mind but also in terms of the setting it's meant to be like a working class family like it's quite a dysfunctional family and she's living in this house which looks like very mid-20th century like lots of sort of mid-20th century antiques and it kind of clicked for me when I looked up his first film which he made like five years ago so he would have been in his early 20s at Craig Roberts and it's this movie called Just Jim where he stars as the protagonist and it's set in a small Welsh town and it's about him being sort of like a dweeby young man and this really cool American moves in next door and it's about this like the cool American trying to teach him how to be like a cooler young man you know it looks very straightforward stuff and it's like it has a lot of the other visually stylized elements but I was looking at this and then I was looking at Eternal Beauty and then also his influences and it was like this guy is he is a millennial he is like one of the youngest working directors and he is completely stuck in like the late 20th century it's all very nostalgic it very much is like it's not just influenced like in terms of camera work and themes by these like gen x and older directors it's like you are literally not doing something which is authentic to your own experience and your own like it's completely reference based right And it's like, it's in like a more of an art film way than all the movies we see now, which are like blockbusters that are obsessed with the 80s. But it just felt to me that it's like, it lacked that authenticity. And it was kind of the same thing that plays into the way where it's like, 
you are trying to draw from your own experiences by making a film that's based on your relative who has schizophrenia. But at the same time, you've like intentionally not done research and it doesn't feel like it's rooted in a real person like now. Yes. Well, the period of the movie is very vague because it's clearly a period film, but it's not clear what period exactly the film well, It comes from the period that is... all of these movies come from, which is the period when we don't want to have cell phones or the internet. Yes. It's just like every filmmaker Correct. who's like, we do not want to have cell phones or the internet. So you have like all these scenes where she's using this kind of red telephone. I have to say, like in the first half of the film, I actually really was, I did, I was into the color coding because you know me, I love a gimmick and I love some color coding. So they have this whole thing where it's like, she is dressed in these extremely dreary costumes um, towards the beginning of the film, which are like 15 sizes too big for Sally Hawkins's very skinny frame. So she's dressing like an old lady and it's very beige council estate in in England but you see kind of in flashbacks where she's played by Morpheth Clark who's actually the actress who starred in Saint Maud my number one movie of 2020 so she's she's doing well she's in lots of stuff but um in those flashbacks you see she's wearing this like amazing blue dress when she was like a young kind of beauty queen and blue is clearly her favorite color and it kind of represents her youth and like vivacity and her two sisters um, who are played by my beloved Billy Piper and Alice Lowe, who's sort of a familiar British TV actress. Um, they both have like their own kind of green and red colour schemes as well. Like when Sally Hawkins is medicated and like depressed and miserable at home, she is wearing beige and like all her family are sort of enforcing this really beige existence where like the first scene is her going to her family for Christmas and basically she has bought her own Christmas presents and is telling them to reimburse her for presents she actually wants which is like a blue handbag and a blue outfit because they're always buying her like boring ass stuff because they've just classified her as the sort of awkward middle-aged mentally ill relative that they like don't really want to engage with which was you know actually I was like such a, it's very sad and like it's actually quite well executed but um then it kind of becomes clear that like blue is like a key color scheme in the film and then later on you see her using a red phone to speak to this voice that she's clearly hallucinating. And they introduce David Thewlis as this kind of more red-themed character. So there's all this colour coding, but then by the end of it, I was just like, it looks good, but I think you need to like tone this down and maybe have more precise ideas behind your colour coding because you can't just be like, this movie's all about red and blue. Yeah, I mean, I think that Craig Roberts clearly has some talent as a director, right? Like, there are certain moments... I think the the best moments of the movie are these individual moments where something kind of unsettling has happened. So the two that stuck out for me were her parents come and visit her at night. So it's kind of dark in her flat. And her mother's telling her that she's ill. But you don't quite know whether she's telling the truth or not, or indeed whether the whole thing is hallucinated or not. And there's just something about the way that he shoots that scene that is really unnerving in a way that I thought was really effective. And there's another scene a bit later where she has sort of absconded with her nephew. She's picked him up at school when she's not supposed to. It doesn't turn into like a big drama, but she sort of picks up in the car and they're driving and he says something that freaks her out a bit and there's a kind of crash or something and he, he like slams forward and he hits his head on the dash and is like slumped over and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt and there's a really long sort of medium shot of the two of them where she's trying to get the seatbelt 
on him, but he's already slumped over and the kid winds up being fine. But you don't know for a second what's happening. And I think Sally Hawkins in that moment is excellent because it's not sort of one end of the extreme range of what she's being asked to do in the movie. It's a more sort of minor key, just like this is this weird little moment of like freaking out. And I think there are, again, moments like that throughout the film where he's doing something that feels a little bit more like it's getting at a real sense of unease that this woman is feeling. There were some moments that are very like tense and scary. But it's buried under all of the other stuff that he's done that feels more like a reference to something, right? And one of the movies he mentioned in one of these interviews as a reference point was Punch Drunk Love. He has said Magnolia 2, both of which are directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. And as soon as I saw the Punch Drunk Love reference, I was like, oh, this guy understand. I've not seen it. I don't know anything about Punch Drunk Love. (laughs) So, I mean, regular listeners will know that Paul Thomas Anderson is my guy. I love him. My favorite director. Punch Drunk Love is... I I hate it so much. (laughs) It's... Oh, I haven't seen his first movie, but with that qualification, easily his worst film, in my opinion. I find it truly odious and offensive. The offensive stuff is really to do with sexism, but the Adam Sandler plays the main character who's got clear like anxiety and anger issues. And then there's this romance with Emily Watson, which is Im- just implausible to... A- preposterous degree an implausible adam sandler romance you say <laughs> never <laughs> yeah he's fine in the movie it's really he's not the problem the problem is the movie but um the color scheme of that film it, there's all this blue stuff in the movie there's a it's very similar to this and it's kind of the bridge film between paul thomas anderson's couple of early movies that are very very influenced by robert altman and then the style he developed which is really his own style later in the films that people will know probably more, uh, which is, you know, there will be blood in the master and fan thread. And so it's interesting in that way, but I really, really, really do not like it. And it has this kind of very like circa 2004 twee indie thing that has not aged well at all. And he says in this interview, Craig Roberts says that it's his favorite movie ever. And I was like, oh no. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was reading that. Oh, and I was like, no. I don't know enough about Punch Drunk Love to see if this is weird. But like, that seems like a weird one. <laughs> I mean, I can see some of the connections in the sense that it's dealing with certain themes about mental illness. Um, and the visual style, clearly he has been influenced by that film. But I don't think that movie is good. And I think he's kind of taken the wrong things from it i mean i don't as i said i don't think it's good so i don't know what the right things would be but it seems like it's kind of again this like superficial style stuff which doesn't really work in this context because that movie takes place in hawaii mostly and like this is a random town in england somewhere which is quite different visually than hawaii so yeah i think again the like talent but not quite knowing what to do with it yet was a lot of what I got from this. But I do think the screenplay is is just a mess. There's a lot of stuff with her family, which we've mentioned a bit, that just doesn't feel like it's fleshed out enough. And I wondered if there had been stuff that then was cut at, at any point, you know, maybe in the original screenplay, but they didn't even shoot it or if it was edited out or something, or whether it just never quite was there. 
But, um, you know, you, you mentioned Billy Piper, who plays one of her sisters. I always love to see Billy Piper, of course. But that character doesn't ever, like, I don't understand what, what she was doing in this movie. Her care role is basically just to, like, be hot and bitchy. <laughs> I don't know. What's going on? And they have these flashbacks to their childhood, but, and, like, there's sort of these implications that the mother was really awful to them. But it's not quite explained fully either, and so the dynamics between the sisters as adults then didn't totally sync up to me. But it seemed like that was meant to be quite important for the story, and I felt just kind of lost. And there are certain things, again, that just, like, come up and then get tossed out, and you don't know whether it's because she's hallucinated something or whether because it's because this movie just hasn't done it correctly. And that I did not like, because it didn't feel deliberately ambiguous. It felt like the movie just wasn't, like, on top of its own story, which is not a good feeling. The beauty queen thing, like, kind of gave, like, a pretty solid basis for the relationship between Sally Hawkins and Billy Piper's sister, because it was, like, it was clear that the mother was sort of setting them against each other to a certain extent and like Sally Hawkins who at this point is Morphe Clark had like started off as like she was initially the beauty queen but the reason why she wasn't succeeding is because she was just like incredibly socially awkward and nervous and like wasn't good on stage so the mother basically replaces her with the Billy Piper sister and who is immediately like much more successful because she's really sort of vivacious and confident even though she's also quite nasty and I was like okay this makes sense and like it kind of settles it like settles in quite well as like a very simple explanation for the the places they are now because like the mum just isn't bothered with like really understanding any of her kids and was quite unpleasant to Sally Hawkins like her daughter with schizophrenia just wasn't she just wasn't really interested in understanding that which like you know really difficult situation for her as a mother but also clearly she was like not being having a great deal of empathy for anyone at any juncture and then Billy Piper is just like really bitter as an adult because like as a teenager she'd be able to feel superior to her sister because she was the confident one who was winning beauty pageants and then as an adult she like just doesn't have anything and it is a little bit of a sexist trope but it did work and it is the kind of role that Billy Piper loves to do and I love to see her and she's great um but then the third sister I was like she's just like the nice one and she actually gets like quite a lot of screen time but she was a bit of a non-entity because she didn't have the same kind of psychological basis in her background because we don't even see her that much and she's just like the nice one who's supporting Sally Hawkins and has has her around for kind of family dinner all the time but it was like so there's the nice one who has a husband that doesn't care about her and has to take care of her kid like what uh <laughs> you know well the contrast between her and Billy Piper I felt was not ideal in terms of sexist no. tropes. I mean, in terms of like, yeah, I was just kind of, now you say like, oh, these characters weren't very well drawn. I was like, compared to the many like family divorce dramas, which you personally love to watch, like the whole kind of premise of those movies is that each individual character has extremely precise characterization and like psychological reasons for why they're all fucked up and why they're fucked up due to their parents. And like, this does not really compare favorably to that, even though there were like a bunch of good performances going on. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's the fault of any of these actors. Um, again, I think Sally Hawkins is often not great in the movie, but I don't think she's, I don't think it's her problem. And I think all the supporting actors certainly do a good job. I just don't think the script gives them a ton to do. And the Billy Piper character in particular, so there's a romance that happens kind of halfway through with this character played by David Thewlis, who runs into Sally Hawkins at the doctor? Yes. Yeah. 
And he's a classic, unappealing David Thewlis character, of which he has so many tucked into his back pocket. <laughs> yes, he just, he can do it all. Um, I think he's pretty good in the movie. Oh, yeah. But, like, they have this sort of whirlwind romance. The sisters are like, this clearly is not going to end well. And then Billy Piper comes to stay with them after they've gotten married after like a month of dating or something and sally hawkins walks in on them sleeping together billy piper and david thulis and i wasn't sure i was like is she hallucinating this what's going on is this really happening but then he's gone which makes you think that it did in fact happen and then there's never any discussion of this again so you don't like conclude that part no, and then when she and Billy Piper encounter each other again, they just like hug and it's all fine. And I was like, that seems I'm like she stole like, your man. Um, right. <laughs> and also kind of the premise or like the, the, the backstory for all of this is that basically Sally Hawkins' character had a breakdown when like when her original fiance left her at the altar. So like her entire mental health issues, I mean, if not like stemming from like this breakup, because that's not really how schizophrenia works, that was like a precipitating incident. The movie kind of suggests that it yeah, stems the from movie, that, which the movie I don't is like love. is like she it was a very sort of like Victorian like oh she had like a nervous breakdown and she's never been the same again and I'm like you know your diagnosis can be like triggered by certain things and certain things can exacerbate it but like that is a brain chemistry issue like it's you know anyway yes. um, once again this film's research was somewhat dubious clearly this romantic relationship was this vitally important thing in her life and it's also quite clear that like her relationship with David Thewlis is very like abrupt intentionally so and it's not like a really deep relationship because they just like get together really fast but also i'm like she wouldn't just why do they kind of like cut that off at the end of the film like they don't they don't conclude that with her and billy piper yeah it's just odd and there's stuff with her and the nephew also like she tells him that he's really her son and then that's never brought up again and i was like i assume this is just one of her hallucinations but yeah what And again, I think if the movie had a stronger control of its tone and its script, that some of these things would work better because you would, you wouldn't know whether the stuff, everything that was happening was real or whether it was just in her head. But instead, it just feels a bit confusing. And I don't think that's ever, again, a feeling that you want your audience to have. Part of the issue with the script is that it just, there's just no dramatic structure. Like things just happen. And then the next thing just happens. And then the next thing just happens. And I was thinking watching it, I was like, is he trying to kind of make a point about like mental illness not having a satisfying narrative structure, right? Because of course it doesn't. But I ultimately do not think that that was intentional. (laughs) Or if it was, then I don't think it was executed very well. And it just becomes a bit frustrating. And ultimately, like the last five minutes of this movie turned into this very soppy kind of like and everything worked out great for everybody and she really was fine and she's happy the way she is isn't that fantastic which undermined any sense that i had that maybe he was making a point with the way the movie was set up the way that movie ended really made me mad because i was just like this is so cheap (laughs) like that anything he had done that was kind of interesting i was just like well Come on, man. (laughs) So she sees the nice sister's husband cheating on her earlier in the movie and then tells the nice sister and the nice sister is like, well, no, that's just a hallucination. And at the end of the film, they literally like run into him 
making out with some other woman in a car randomly in the middle of the road that they happen to drive by because they have to conveniently run into him in order for that plot line to resolve. And I was like, that's not how life works. Like, no, come on. And I think the like superhero thing comes in at the end where she's just like, you know, I don't want to be normal, which like that is fine. But it just feels, again, like too easy. I mean, before we wrap up, would you like to talk about other movies featuring schizophrenia? Because like it's a relatively short list and I'm sure I've seen a few, but like I think A Beautiful Mind is like one of the most famous and I've not seen that. (laughs) I have not either. I do not believe it is very good. Um, No, I mean, it's not known for being like a sensitive and accurate portrayal of of mental illness. But, you know, the thing is, right, there's like so many movies that are like, what if you were imagining someone who was speaking to you? What if you were like hallucinating in a really narratively neat way? And this film is kind of trying to avoid that, but also is kind of falling into some other issues. Yeah, the one that I was thinking about a lot watching this was this little indie movie that came out last year that I believe is on Netflix everywhere. I think they bought the rights worldwide. It's certainly on Netflix here, called Horse Girl, which stars and was co-written by Alison Brie. I don't think this is a great movie, but I think it's pretty interesting. And I think it is better than this film at dealing with this subject matter. Alison Brie apparently has a history of schizophrenia in her family. I think I saw in an interview I was just looking at that her maternal grandmother had it and she herself has had, you know, struggles with depression and mental health stuff, although not specifically schizophrenia. And she wrote this film or co-wrote this film and produced it because she wanted to explore this topic that was a sort of big thing in her family. And the end of that movie is also really maddening in a different way than this film, but she's really good in it. And I think it does a really good job of making that main character quite sympathetic, but not in the way that, makes her feel like sentimental. The the film basically is about this the this woman sort of beginning to show symptoms of parent schizophrenia. So she's just very awkward at the beginning and has this kind of like depressing life and then it starts to get worse because she's having these delusions and it just doesn't sort of sentimentalize the condition at all because it is it's a really you know brutal thing and is really difficult to treat and um you know it is treatable depending on the severity of the individual you know person's case but it's it's really really tough and it's a very alienating condition and i think that it's tough to deal with in movies because obviously you don't want to be dehumanizing but to depict it honestly I think can be just really upsetting and this movie that we've been talking about I think just kind of shies away from the more really intense and sort of awful stuff that can come along with this and I think that Horse Girl does a pretty good job of you know showing the stuff that can be pretty rough, but also always remaining in that character's head and point of view and having you remain sympathetic to her and kind of understand what's going on in her brain while also being like, oh no, <laughs> like, this is really bad and she's kind of losing it. 
which I was impressed by, even if I didn't think the whole movie kind of worked. So if people are interested in this subject, I would definitely recommend that movie, even if it's not a masterpiece. Um, it just felt more specific to me than this film, which makes sense because even if Alison Brie hasn't like personally experienced the condition herself, she obviously has this in her family and has thought about it a lot and has clearly been really depressed and gone through struggles with mental illness. And it felt like with Eternal Beauty... It felt like someone on the outside looking in to me with the best of intentions. Yeah. But like, I just felt like he didn't get it. And again, I don't, I'm not schizophrenic. I don't know either, but it just didn't feel quite real to me in a way that then begins to feel kind of condescending because even if you're trying really hard, it just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Which is too bad. And it's a film with like a fundamentally different intention than like Fight Club. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> I was like yes. looking at the IMDb <laughs> list of movies with like themes of schizophrenia and it's like American Psycho, Fight Club, Joker, A Beautiful Mind, Donnie Darko. And I'm like, I mean, technically you could give diagnoses to many of these characters, but um, that is not the aim of these films. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. So I'll be curious to see what he does. Well, I was, yeah, his future. next movie, like you said, it stars Sally Hawkins and it co-stars Mike Rylance who is literally like one of the best living actors and repeatedly does bad movies he almost exclusively makes bad movies which is maddening to me because I really can't reiterate enough how wonderful he is but I was looking at this description and it was like movie with Sally Hawkins movie with Mark Rylance and it's like this movie's about golfers and I was like a golfer I'm gonna have to watch a movie about a golfer (laughs) well is it that he makes bad movies or is that he he only really works with like Steven Spielberg. He makes some other. I mean, he's made one. He's made he's made one good movie, which is uh, Dunkirk, and every other movie. <laughs> he's done some movies with non Steven Spielbergs, and they're all bad. <laughs> I mean, I I have no answer for you. I feel like he just likes to work with people he likes, which is definitely the Spielberg situation. Like they're just having a ball. Spielberg's. I mean, I have to I have to remind myself that I sympathize with this because you don't see me like striking out to make ambitious creative choices. I'm like, I'm gonna go with the chill option. (laughs) Well also he's still doing I mean not at the moment. Oh yeah, he's doing real theater. Doing so much intense theater. I feel like the film stuff, he's just like, sure. Give me some cash to play like a spy in your garbage film, Steven. (laughs) And I will win an Oscar. Great. (laughs) And now people like my father who saw that movie are like Mark Rylance. He's so good. (laughs) And he's known across the world for that reason. He was in Wolf Hall, which was fantastic, which was a TV show. TV. You know, anyway, we look forward to seeing his golf movie, I guess, (laughs) directed by Craig Roberts. Apologies to, you know, our patron for not loving this film, but it happens. It does. We have had four or five episodes where someone has requested a movie, which we've not liked. But yes, Next week, we will be watching the film Sweet Country, which is an Australian Western, takes place in 1929 and uh, stars Sam Neill as well as an Aboriginal actor named Hamilton Morris um, and has to do with, I think, the sort of colonization stuff going on in the sort of desert part of Australia. I'm really looking forward to talking about this movie. That film, again, is called Sweet Country and it is, you know, rentable anywhere. So uh, check that out if you want to be prepared for that episode. And uh, thank you so much, as always, for listening. You can 
find our Patreon where we recently posted a commentary track for Titanic, many hours long. Uh, great fun. At patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And Gabby, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I will recently have posted a video all about costume design and sitcoms for any WandaVision fans out there. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.